Okay. So yeah, this past week, um, I was I got the privilege to serve with a youth camp. Um, a friend of mine asked me if I would come out and just uh, for the week spend some time with some middle schoolers, high schoolers, and just uh, help lead worship and just. Um, I just wanted to share how encouraged I was by seeing all these, all this, this, this younger generation just crying out for God. It was a lot of fun. We had a good time. We were running around playing games, but they always came, no matter what, ready to serve, ready to search after God and cry out to him relentlessly. So I just wanted to encourage you guys to come this morning and throughout the rest of your days just with that same energy, that same attitude, just relentlessly crying out to God. All right, so let's sing together. together strangers neighbors our blood is one children generations of every nation the kingdom come so don't let your heart be troubled Hold your head up high, don't fear no evil. Fix your eyes on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. So take courage, hold on, be strong. Remember where our help comes from. Let the praise go up as the walls come down. All your days 
shine Everything with breath Repeat the sound All his children Clean hands, pure hearts Good grace, good God His name is Jesus Yeah As we wide All you heavens Let the praise go up As the walls come down All creation Everything with breath Repeat the sound All his children Clean hands, pure hearts Good grace, good God His name is Jesus Let's sing it again Get them clapping Swing wide All you heavens Let the praise go up As the walls come down All creation Children, clean hands, your hearts, good grace, good God. His name is Jesus.
and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great bless this time that you'd be with us Lord that we would realize that you were here you were moving pray you'd speak through Alex this morning just give him wisdom as he speaks Lord and give us wisdom and open hearts to hear and in your son's name amen 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 all right everybody kiddos you can go on back and why don't everybody just turn around say hi to someone behind you or in front of you just Say hi. Good. Good morning, everyone. This is always an interesting transition when we have the kids go back because half the church leaves, and then somewhere in the middle of the announcements, they come back. So, in essence, if you have a child, you miss all the announcements. That's what it seems to be. So, but welcome. Good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is uh, Rich, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the family pastor. And we just want to welcome you and say good morning and hello to you. And just thanks uh, for being with us and visiting. And also a shout out to those of you that are watching online. Appreciate it. And I hope you're having a good morning, sitting in your pajamas, drinking your coffee, eating your bagels, and perhaps something else. So the rest of us will suffer being together here. 
So anyways, but the happy fourth, uh, you know, it's always an interesting weekend and, uh, you know, for the church and, and what it looks like as far as because families are visiting all the time, but we're glad that you're here. Anybody go to red, white, and boom? Okay. <laughs> Four brave souls. Yes, yes. Four brave souls, or we could use a different, we won't go there. Okay, so, but uh, anyways, glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're going to uh, ask you to pull out a connect card. It's right in front of you, and um, you, if you can begin filling out that information on the card, uh, if you're a first-time visitor, we just want to send you a thank you card, or, and just, you know, glad that you're here with us, and then invite you to our welcome center, where we have a welcome bag with a gift for you and some information about the church. So, um, also, if you have any prayer requests, anything that's going on in your life, Pastors get together each week and we pray over these. And so we'd appreciate it if you let us know what's going on in your life so we can be praying for those things. All right, we're just going to go through a couple of, of little announcements here this morning. Uh, first off, if this is the first time you've seen a baby bottle on the stage of a church, well, congratulations. Actually, this is part of um, our PDHC Bottles for Life campaign that uh, involves collecting some money for a, a ministry that we are involved with. And so uh, we just wanted to give you a little update here. And so you guys filled enough baby bottles with change and other things to raise $2,114.50. So we really appreciate that. And, um, you know, this is kind of a little bit of a reminder that um, after the recent Roe v. Wade decision that uh, as the body of Christ, as a church, that we need to, you know, step it up and continue to support pregnancy distress centers such as PDHC and things like Orphan World Relief and, uh, and thoughts on foster care and adoption. So um, you know, it's just a reminder to us that there is a lot that still needs to be done and we need to be a part of the solution of helping and encouraging and supporting those types of ministries. So thank you again so very much for that. Um, and then the next one is, you know, our church runs on volunteers, right? Not Red Bull but on volunteers. And some, a lot of people might think it's um, on pastors and the staff, but we just, we don't roll like that. We're a community, we are the body of Christ. And so um, we have a very robust amount of volunteers, but uh, as it always seems, there's, you're, we're always looking for some more. So this is a heads up announcement for you. Next week, there's gonna be a special announcement about uh, three different ministries uh, where we particularly need some help at. And so we're gonna in, uh, have that announcement for you, kind of lay things out a little bit, and we're gonna invite you to the fellowship hall after the service, and we're gonna have some food there to entice you to come back. And um, so if you think that you might possibly I'd uh, like to hear some information about that. We want to get a, a tiny bit of a heads up on the amount of food. So uh, this is going to be very safe for you. All you have to do on your Connect card is just write food. But if you're really brave, you can put your name on there too. And um, so, but if we, we'd appreciate that, just kind of give a little heads up. It'll be a great little time. We won't spend more than an hour back there uh, explaining some of the uh, ministries and some of the needs that um, we need. So, all right, I think that's it. And uh, other than the last thing, uh, I think I would... As far as that announcement goes, I would just ask that you um, would, would begin to pray about that and see if the Lord moves you to uh, being a part of volunteering here. Okay, it's my pleasure to welcome up my buddy, Alex Fabian. Why don't you give him a big hand? So Alex is our student ministries director. Rich. And, uh, and so... 
uh, we're very involved in, in trying to raise up the next generation of leaders and pastors and stuff, and um, Alex is a part of that, and so we like to give him opportunities to, uh, uh, to give a message, and so in the summertime is also a very great time to be able to do that. So um, should I say anything else about you, Alex, or is that good? Um, yeah, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Okay. Kind of putting me on the spot. It is, yeah. But he's great to work with, and so um, we're looking forward to him taking us into the next message on Conversations with Jesus. All right. Uh, I'm actually going to grab this stool for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is I thought it'd be kind of cool to emulate a conversation. The other reason is uh, I hurt my back the other day. Uh, and the worst part is it's not even a good story. I was swinging a golf club. So I thought, you know, what better way than to just kind of hit two birds with one stone, have a conversation, and, you know, maybe not keel over from the excruciating pain I'm feeling. Uh, I'm just kidding. But as Pastor Rich said, uh, I am the student ministries director here. My name is Alex Fabian. Uh, some of you may know my family, my wife, Heather. We have three beautiful children. Our daughter, Harper, is six and a half. She'll be seven in January. Uh, my son, EJ, is our middle child. He's four and a half. And then our youngest is Isaac, and he just turned three. And so we have loved so much being part of this family and the way that we see you guys love and interact with my kids and, and all of us has just been great. And so, uh, as Rich said again though, I am the director of student ministries here. We serve our life, our lifeline is what we affectionately call it. And it's part of our family ministries. Also working in tandem with, as many of you know, Cross Crew, which is headed up by Lisa. Now I know that this is not youth group. I know it's Sunday, but I thought we could play a game in true youth group fashion. Now, before you get nervous, don't worry, don't worry. I did not choose a game that will put you at risk of looking foolish in front of teenagers like I do every Saturday night. I also have uh, chosen a game where there's not gonna be any risk of injury because if you attend Saturday night, my famous line is, that's just too much paperwork. The game we're gonna play is called Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you remember, on Father's Day, I did announcements and Pastor Nick Carruthers was like, man, I'm so surprised Fabian's not up there, you know, telling a dad joke. Well, I'm gonna tell a lie. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna play this game called Two Truths and a Lie. And if you've never played this game before, it's fairly simple. All you have to do is determine which of these three statements is the lie. So here we go, here's the first three statements. First statement is, I got a hole in one on a 205 yard par three. It was a five iron. I stood up there, I hit it, it went, and it went in. Second statement. <laughs> it's fairly straightforward. Second statement, when I was in high school, I was asked to participate in a program called the Young Scholars of Erie program. For those of you that don't know, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And basically what this was, was it was a program for young students that they identified as gifted. And what it did was it allowed them to network with colleges, professors, and even audit some classes that were potentially of interest as you, you know, moved into your college career. And the third statement, is that I am professionally trained in classical French cuisine. Now, listen, disclaimer, if you're near a middle schooler or a high schooler, don't let them influence you, okay? Because they know the answer to this. So, by a show of hands, how many of you think 
The lie, so again, you're identifying the lie. How many of you think the lie is that I got a hole in one on a 205 yard par three? First of all, how dare you? (laughs) How many of you think that I was invited to join the Young Scholars of Erie program in high school? I love you. And the last one is how many of you think the lie is that I am professionally trained in classical French cuisine? Okay, so here's the thing. The answer, believe it or not, is that I was not in fact invited to join the Young Scholars of Erie program, nor does that even exist. If it did exist, however, no shot I'd get in. So why did we play this game? It's a good question. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you did actually believe that I was in fact part of the Young Scholars of Erie program and I identified one of the other things as a lie. Especially because I have told you this in contrast with a lie. So one of these things has to be a lie. The other two have to be true. And we live in a time right now in 2022 where the idea of absolute truth and knowing absolute truth gets a little murky. I'm sure most of you are aware that Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. Now, before you, before you get ahead of yourself, it's hyphenated, so therefore one word. Post-truth is an adjective. It's defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We do this all the time. As a culture, we see companies or or people with their own agenda feasting on our emotions, not even getting to the point of truth, but just taking advantage of all of these things. So we see this play out day in and day out. So today what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at a passage, a conversation, between Pilate and Jesus, and I wanna work through this passage in such a way that I hope to answer the question that Pilate asks at the end of what is truth. So today's text is John 18, it's uh, 33 through 38, it's found on page 904 in the Pew Bible, or the Chair Bible now, that's right in front of you, so if you can, if you're able to, please stand as we read God's word. So again, John 18, 33 through 38, and it says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and, Jesus, and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do you say this because others have said this about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose only I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here together as a church family. Not just a bunch of random people that just so happen to come to the same church, but the way that we do church is to become a family. And so we pray, Lord, that eyes would be open, 
we could have ears open and, and, and we can hear what it is that your word teaches us about our truth, about your truth and Jesus as the truth and that we may live our lives according to that. Father, we love you. We pray that you would hide me behind the cross this morning so that when this message is, is received, it's your words and nothing of mine. Father, we love you and we pray these things in your name. You guys can have a seat. Wouldn't that be funny though if I just said you have to stand the whole time? Um, so there are three points, three main points that I would like to pull out of this text. They're based on Pilate's questions that he asks Jesus. But before we get into this actual conversation, let me give you a little background and set the scene. Earlier in John 18, we see that Jesus is arrested. He's arrested while he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've not read John 17, uh, there's an amazing line in there where Jesus is praying to the Father and he's acknowledging that he was born into this world to be truth. He was born into this world because his kingdom is not of this world. And so it's just incredible how these two things converge and, and, and play into each other. But basically what happens is after he gets arrested, they take him to the high priest. He then stands trial, with all, which ultimately ends with the priest delivering him to Pilate, the governor, with the charge that Jesus has claimed to be king of the Jews. So they go, they, they bring Jesus to Pilate's headquarters, okay? But what's interesting is they don't go into the headquarters because if they did, they would be defiled. And if they were defiled, they would not be able to participate in Passover. So all they wanted to do was protect the integrity of being able to participate in the Passover meal when they're delivering the Passover lamb to Pilate to die. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. So here's Pilate and Jesus, and they're having this conversation inside of Pilate's headquarters, and Pilate starts out, gets right to the point. He says, are you king of the Jews? Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, answers the question with a question. I love this about Jesus. He's the only person I know that consistently gets away with this. He says, why, why is it that you ask this of me? Are you asking me because you believe it for yourself or are you asking it because you've been influenced by others to believe this? Now let me point out how important that is to our conversation this morning. It's actually my first point. Do I believe something because it's what I know? Now you could fill that something in with anything. Anything, medical information, any, anything about yourself, anything about what others say about other people, anything. Do I believe blank because I've been influenced to it or do I believe blank because it's what I know? In other words, is this the power of suggestion? Is this the power of truth versus, this is the power of truth versus popular opinion. Now, this is a question of Pilate's character, not just what he believes. He's asking Pilate again, do you believe this because you've been influenced? Where is it that you are, are, are believing this from? Um, I want to tell uh, another conversation real quick about my daughter, Harper, uh, who again, if you don't know her, she's perfect. Um, but she, she was having a conversation with a little kid at daycare. And this little kid at daycare said to her, hey, if you paint your nails, you'll turn into a monster. Now, 
sounds kind of funny, but when you're, you know, six and a half years old, it's, you know, it's like, oh, is that, is that true? Like, I trust this person? Like, I don't, yeah, I don't really know. So Thursday morning, I was getting ready for work, and, and she comes out uh, into the hallway, and she's like, Daddy, 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 you have to get this nail polish off of me. And I was like, why? She's like, I just, you, you have to get it off. You have to get it off. I mean, she had like soap all over her hands and it was clear she was like scrubbing it off. Now what Harper didn't know is that Heather, my wife, had told me of this conversation. So I wanted to try to do a little research and figure out, you know, if Harper would share the same information with me in order to facilitate a conversation. Not because I think she's a liar, but I, uh, I, so I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm getting the nail polish off and I'm like, why, you know, why, why are you so urgent to do this? You know what? And she's like, oh, no, no reason. I'm like, did, did somebody tell you something? She's like, no. And I'm like, oh, that's believable. Um, but then I said, I, I kind of showed all my cards and I said, hey, did somebody at daycare say something? And she said, yes. And so I said, Harper, mommy and daddy Two people you love and trust are telling you it's not true. This little girl at daycare is telling you it is true. You have to make a decision based on the sources, based on the trust, based on the evidences, based on consistency and time spent with person of who you're going to believe. And in the exact same way, that's what Pilate has to do. See, in this conversation, there's not two truths and a lie. Jesus only tells truths. But the lies come in that Pilate has to figure out is from everybody else. So in the same way that you had to use context clues, my personality, things you may know about me over the last five or six years I've been here to determine which is the truth and which is a lie, Pilate has to do the same thing. It's a very, very important thing that we need to do in our culture. So over the years, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in an article that I read about the criteria of truth, there are actually qualifiers that make something truth versus not truth. One of the criteria that, that we have identified for making something not truth or not allowing something to be ratified as truth is this idea called custom. This would be similar to like a popular opinion poll. So anytime you Google, you know, what is the best movie of 2022 or what car is best for my family of five, those are popular opinion polls. And what may be true for me may not be true for you. Subjective truth, which is not true. There's no such thing as subjective truth. So really what Pilate, or really what Jesus is asking Pilate here is, do you believe this is true? Or have you been influenced into believing this is true based on popular belief. Now, over the years that I've been following Jesus, I have met many, many people with issues in the Bible, issues in, in teachings of the Bible. In my own experience, just my own experience, about 90% of the time they have said things that somebody else has said to them that they think the Bible says. But the person that's receiving or consuming that information hasn't even read the Bible for themselves. They just employ this idea of this being true because they trust that source. The question we need to ask ourselves over and over and over again with anything is am I believing, am I allowing popular opinion on a subject matter to invade understanding of the truth? Because again, 
There's no subjective truth. Are we so caught up in the opinions of people that we trust and that we look up to that we just readily take them at face value and say, yeah, that's true. And maybe an even more important question we must ask ourselves is, is this person that's telling me this information trying to push their own agenda about a subject? Now, I've had conversations with people that are not Christian and they use the Bible. They use the Bible completely and totally out of context to try to dispute the Bible because they have their own issues with Christianity. And once again, they're not using the Bible correctly. They're just trying to further their own opinion about the Bible. It's a trap that we fall into easily. Think about it. We do this all the time as people. We do this while we listen in conversations. We do this when we're consumers of ads we see on TV that such and such company is so much better than other company. And an example that I thought of was like AT&T, cell phone service company, will come out with a statement and they'll show a map that you know, their 5G wireless coverage is, is all painted in blue. And then they will literally say, and here's Verizon's with you know, Verizon in red. They don't even try to hide it anymore. They just want you to believe their version of truth as opposed to someone else's. And this is exactly what Jesus is asking Pilate if he's doing. Are you influenced by popular opinion? Or do you believe this because it's what you know? Now, here's the thing that I love so much about Jesus. You guys remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Rich was talking through John chapter three. It's the meeting of Jesus and Nicodemus. In that, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and one of my favorite parts of that scripture is Jesus says, It says in John chapter three, for Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. So although Jesus knows what's in Pilate's heart, although Jesus knows what's about to happen, he still gives Pilate an opportunity. He still gives Pilate an opportunity to be introspective. He still gives Pilate an opportunity to figure out, okay, like what am I being influenced here? Is this truth a truth that I need to employ for my life or do I just, you know, kind of not want to deal with popular opinion because maybe, maybe they won't like me. Maybe I'll be less possible. So again, my first point is ask yourself the question, do I believe this because it's what I know? So moving on in our conversation, after Jesus asked Pilate the question back, Pilate then says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? What is it that you've done? Pilate makes this incredibly, incredibly painful observation of who it was that killed Jesus. It was Jesus' own people. They betrayed him and they delivered him over to die. What an absolute heart-wrenching reminder of Jesus juxtaposed by an absolute perfect picture of Jesus choosing grace. So Jesus looks at him and he makes the claim, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So finally, finally, Jesus gives Pilate a straight answer, right? Well, not really. My second point this morning is that Jesus's kingdom is unlike any other earthly kingdom that we know. Now listen, if you've spent any time in church, 
You've probably heard this before. There's a lot of talk about kingdom of heaven, a lot of talk about Jesus' kingdom and, and so on and so forth. And here at Linworth, we've talked about it quite a bit. And as Christians, we know that because Jesus' kingdom is not from this world, we also are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We know that Jesus, though, brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. But have you ever really stopped and considered the truth in that statement? See, once again, I'm jumping ahead in this passage, uh, but I, I love this point. I love this passage so much because, again, the goal is to talk about what is truth. And if we use this passage and employ that question of what is truth to all of the other points, I think it gives us a better understanding. This passage kind of folds itself back into itself, and I, I, I just I love that. So I think in order to understand the fact that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world or from this world, we have to know what Jesus's kingdom is. It's the spiritual realm in which Jesus reigns. It's where Jesus has complete and total sovereignty. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, it says, yours Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Now, not only do we see that Jesus is the head of the kingdom, the kingdom is Jesus's, but we have five incredible adjectives to describe what that kingdom is. It's great, it's powerful, there's glory there, majesty, splendor. It is completely and totally God's. There's no other influence. No other popular opinion polls. And as believers, it's our main goal to inherit this kingdom, and we see this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. This gives us the understanding. If you read through that, you read through what we know as the Beatitudes, what we see is that this is not a humanly accomplishment. It's the opposite of that. It's a divine gift. We can't earn it. Jesus gives it to us, gives it to us. Now, because of that, this is the outcome of grace. This is the restoration of all creation that was lost in the fall back to God. It's the kingdom of already, but not yet. Christ has come to give us hope. He's come to give us understanding of who he is, what we can have in him, but he has not yet restored it completely to the garden. And one of my favorite parts of, of the Bible, it's in Revelation 21, one through five. And it says, uh, it, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, right? It talks about how in this new heaven and in this new earth, there's not gonna be any more tears or crying or suffering or pain or mourning. And it says this little, this, this little sentence that I, I have always found a little fascinating. It says there will be no more seas. Now, thankfully, that's good for me because I am terrified of boats. Uh, but the question is, why, why does that say no more seas? Like, I get no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. I get that. But why not seas? I think the answer is because when John wrote this, he was in exile. He was in exile on the island of Patmos. And although I wasn't in the Young Scholars of Erie program, I know that <laughs> an island is a, a, a body, is a, is a piece of land surrounded completely by a body of water. Now, in the Bible, we see time and time again that water is chaos. 
It's separation. What John is writing here is there will be nothing that separates us from God because the old order of things is gone and the new is here. What we lost in the garden, we have in the Father. And I don't know about you, church, that sounds good to me. That sounds very, very good to me. I would like that. I don't mean to share any spoilers here, though. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you can actually have part of this kingdom while you're here on this earth because Jesus came to reveal this kingdom to those that are of truth. And the thing I love so much about Jesus' answer to Pilate here is that he's saying his kingdom is not of this world. He says it's not from this world. And therefore, he's making the statement that any battles that need to happen in my kingdom are not the same type of battles that you know of from your earthly kingdoms. In Ephesians chapter six, Paul makes this point again. He says in verse 12, for our struggle as believers, our struggle as people that inhabit the kingdom of heaven is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I would encourage you guys to go back and listen to Pastor Carruthers' message where he talks more in depth about this so we can have a better understanding of what that really means. But here's the thing, Pilate is like so many of us. He doesn't say, oh, what does that mean? Tell me, tell me more, like what do you mean your kingdom's not of this world? You know what he says? So you are a king. It's like he just totally misses it. And Jesus replies to him and he says, you say I'm a king. I say, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone, everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. What an inclusive statement. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your mess, doesn't matter if you've denied it before, it's an inclusive statement that everyone has an opportunity to be of truth and respond in listening. If you're a parent, you know that there is a difference between your child listening and your child hearing, especially if your son is three and a monster just like mine. But Pilate, at the end of all of this, again, doesn't take the opportunity to be introspective, doesn't take the opportunity to figure out more. He just says, what is truth? In, in one of the translations I read, I, I think it was the NIV, it literally says, and Pilate retorts back to Jesus, what is truth? As if to say, what even is truth anymore? What even is truth anymore? I have so many conflicting things about what is truth. I have these people saying this, I have you saying this, what even is truth and how could anybody even know it? My last point this morning is gonna focus around this question, what is truth? But before we jump ahead to that, let's talk real quick about Jesus' reply to Pilate asking him if he's a king. So Pilate says, are you a king? I think it's incredible that Jesus says, you say I'm a king, you say I'm a king. There's a period at the end of this. It's a statement. Jesus is saying, you say I'm a king? And what Jesus is telling Pilate in that statement back to him is 
I'm a king. Yeah, I'm a king. But I am a king unlike any king you've ever known. I'm the king of kings. And because I'm the king of kings, I was born to this world to bear witness to the truth. I'm not just an earthly king, I'm a heavenly king. Jesus makes a clear statement here about what his role is. He says again, I am born to bear witness to the truth. So as, as most of you guys know, a couple weeks ago, our high school ministry was able to participate in an event that we do annually called Serve the City. Uh, it's one of my favorite events, I, I love it so much. And this year our theme was restoration. And I was fortunate enough to be able to preach through one of my favorite uh, stories in the Bible where there's Jairus approaching Jesus because his daughter is dying and there is a woman with a bleeding problem and she reaches up and she touches the back part of Jesus' garment. Now, in the midst of this incredible thing, there's societal truths about this woman, right? She's unclean, nobody wants to be with her. She's, she's lost all of her resources, she's hopeless, and yet she approaches Jesus. And in the same way that Jairus is seemingly hopeless, he approaches Jesus. And Jesus is able to accomplish two miracles in this story. Not only does he restore the woman, he then declares her to be clean, and not only does he go on to restore Jairus' daughter, he declares her to, you know, to rise. But what I found really, really interesting in this story, and, and you see it at a couple of different points in scripture, Jesus literally says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. You know, here's the thing. Pilate asks Jesus, what did you do? Jesus could have taken that opportunity to be like, I've raised people from the dead. I've healed people. I've let the lame walk. I've let the blind see. What more proof and evidence do you need that I am in fact the king of kings? That I am in fact the one who is able to do all of these things that nobody else can do. But when I was doing research, a lot of uh, commentaries and biblical scholars agree that the reason Jesus says don't tell anyone is because he did not want even his greatest miracles and accomplishments to stop him and distract others from doing his kingdom work, which we see leads to this road, this conversation with Pilate and then what goes on to happen. See, I think Jesus was so concerned about sharing the message of the kingdom of heaven and the hope that we can have in the kingdom of heaven, that this is what Jesus really came to this earth to be. I think that is the truth that Jesus came to this earth to share. The reason Jesus was born was to give those blind people that he gave sight to sight to see the truth. The real, Jesus, the real reason Jesus was born was to give hearing to those that were deaf the opportunity to hear truth. And notice, uh, and notice this final, notice the verbiage that Jesus uses here. He says, the truth, not a truth. The truth, not a truth. So here's my final point. Jesus is the truth. 
In this one statement, Jesus separates himself from any other religious figure. There's no other religious figure that says, I am the truth. There's also no other religious figure that came down to earth, walked amongst his people, healed his people, died for his people. Every other religious figure was like, hey, I'm gonna be up here exalted and I want you to try to be like me. There's so many differences in there, but again, this main difference that I love to point out is that Jesus said he is the truth. And yet, and yet, as Jesus knows this, after he's accomplished more in three years of ministry, he's so kingdom focused and so ready to accomplish his father's will that he humbly stands before Pilate knowing what's about to happen. And he proclaims proudly, I was born to this earth to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And again, let me, let me highlight this other amazing wordplay that Jesus has here. He says, everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. This is amazing because again, there's a qualifier on those that hear and those that listen. Those that hear his voice and listen to him. If you listen to him, you are of truth. And yet, he's leaving room to say that there will be those that hear me and choose not to listen. Therefore, if they're, therefore they are not of truth. Here's the thing, that little girl at daycare that told my daughter that if you paint your nails black, you'll turn into a monster, she's allowed to say that. Legally, maybe not morally, like just because I'm her dad, but like there's, she's not gonna get in trouble for saying that, right? And in the same way, anybody can say anything. But again, we have to use evidences of what we know to be the truth to try to corroborate that statement. And if it doesn't match up, we can dismiss it and we can have hope in what we know is the actual truth. I love so much where Jesus says, anyone who listens to me is of, listens to my voice will know truth. When I read this, it reminds me of Jesus as a shepherd. It reminds me, it makes me think of when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. This is in John 10. It says in verse 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Linworth, if we are of truth as followers of Jesus, we will listen to his voice we will be called to safe pastures. We will be protected by those that seek to kill and destroy because our father, our shepherd, lays down his life to protect us, his little flock. So let's take one last look at this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And the last question Pilate asked during this de facto trial of Jesus is what is truth? Now, I'll be honest with you. When I, when I first read this and I first chose this, I wrote like a 45 minute message on what is truth. And after meeting with uh, Rich and talking it over with Rich, I realized that I was 
attempting to continue the conversation. This was Thursday, so I scrapped it and rewrote the whole thing. So bear with me. Uh, but in my, in my preparation for this message, I, like I said, I thought a lot about Pilate's question. So you know what I did? I did the thing that every biblical scholar does. I Googled it. I Googled what is the definition of truth. You know what I found? You know what I found? Truth is defined as the state of being true. Thank you, Webster. But I didn't let that deter me. No, I doubled down. And I thought, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. Maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. Maybe what I have to do is determine first if we can even know truth. Because if we can't know truth, how can we ever arrive at a decision that something is true? So I conducted a poll, my own research. Uh, I can't corroborate this with any, you know, Barna research or anything else. This is just, you know, asking people different things, uh, di- asking different people things. Uh, and what I found was that 85%, about 85% of people say we can know truth. 85% of people were right. No, I'm just kidding. About 10% of people said we can know some truth. And about 5% of people said, no, we can't know truth. And honestly, after looking over that research, it really didn't help. So (laughs) what I did was I read the text again, and I found the answer in the Bible. Imagine. (laughs) Jesus says he is the truth. Could have saved me a lot of time, but you know. Here's the thing, if Jesus is the truth, how can we know that? Again, do you see my cycle of confusion here? How can we know Jesus is the truth? There's a movie that came out, I think it was 2017. Uh, It's called A Case for Christ. And in this, there's a a notable reporter named Lee Strobel, and his wife has this interaction with this lady after this lady saves their daughter from choking. And she starts to feel, his wife starts to feel something, right? And so Lee Strobel, the reporter, is like super thrown off by this because he's, you know, all out atheist, he's all for it. And as an investigative reporter, he decides that what he's going to do is mount an all out investigation to, to disprove Christianity. So he's talking to a coworker, and the coworker says, okay. If you want to disprove Christianity, you got to go for the jugular. You want to bring this whole thing down? Go for the jugular, the resurrection of Jesus. Because the reality is, if this resurrection didn't actually happen, everything else that Jesus says doesn't hold the same weight. Jesus, yeah, would have been a really, really nice guy, done a lot of really, really nice things for people, but being a nice person doesn't make you the Messiah. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, basically, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile. So what I want to do real quick as we end here is examine evidences of the resurrection. And again, we've already established this. I was not a young scholar of Erie, but I do remember enough to know that you can't use the source as evidence to prove your point. So what I wanna do is I wanna juxtapose the evidence we have in the Bible with extra biblical or outside biblical resources. So let's take a look at some of the evidences of the resurrection. First, we need to establish that Jesus actually lived. So 
Roman and Jewish historians were famous for a lot of things. One of the things they were most famous for was keeping meticulous records. They kept records of who was in leadership at what time. They kept records of where that person's kingdom was. They kept records of things that happened. And one of the things that has come up as people have argued this over years of like the historical evidence to prove Jesus was alive is this person of Pontius Pilate. And I think it was about 60 years ago that they discovered evidence of a man called Pontius Pilate. So this proves further that Jesus was an actual historical character. And most importantly, that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Rome at the specific time that we know that Jesus lived. So we can cross-examine that with the biblical references to historical fact as we see in Luke, we see this in Matthew, and we can place Jesus at that time in that place. There's so much evidence that, in fact, this is true, not one historian, whether they're a Christian or not, disputes the fact that Jesus was, in fact, a real man. So, great, Jesus lived. Now we have to prove that Jesus died. This is a very, very common um, argument that people give. Well, yeah, okay, if Jesus lived and, and he did all these things, how, maybe he didn't die and that's why he was able to be seen by 500 people later. So, here's the thing. The Romans were not only known as being meticulous record keepers, they were known as professional killers. That was their job. They knew how to take the subject or the criminal to within an inch of their life and then put them on the cross. So there are historical texts that corroborate the account of tools and methods that were commonly used on criminals that were sent to crucifixion that work 100% in tandem with what we see here in the Bible. Now again, these men were professional killers, right? If they didn't succeed in crucifying the criminal, they themselves were subject to crucifixion. They failed in their tasks. So there was a lot of, on the line for these people. And not only uh, do we have that type of evidence that Jesus lived, we have the Roman evidence that Jesus probably died, we actually have medical evidence that Jesus died. Uh, and again, this would dispute any swoon theories or thoughts that maybe Jesus wasn't actually dead. The swoon theory is basically that Jesus fainted or that his heart rate was so low that it was undetectable, but he was able to somehow recover. The way that Jesus was hung on the cross, okay, so Jesus was hung on the cross in such a way that his arms were out like this, making it extremely difficult for him to breathe in and breathe out. He would have had to raise himself up in order to draw a breath. And when he did this, his back would have scraped against the cross, the roughness of the wood on the cross, thus causing further injury to his already beaten up back, causing him to bleed more, causing him to have excruciating pain, which no doubt led to him just being completely and totally exhausted. And in the middle of him trying to raise himself up to breathe, he was essentially suffocating. Now, that is exactly what happens to a person when they're crucified. They suffocate. The medical cause of death when someone is crucified is called asphyxiation. 
The way that medical examiners in 2022 believe and can prove that the cause of death is asphyxiation is by observing blood and water in the body. And we know because of an account that there was a man that stabbed Jesus between the fourth and fifth rib, I think it was, that would have punctured his lung and what came out? Blood and water. Thus proving medically that Jesus was in fact dead because had he not suffocated prior to this point, it would have just been blood. But okay, let's just suspend belief for a second that Jesus didn't actually get punctured. I don't know that I as a relatively healthy person could survive in a cave with a giant rock, like a giant rock covering it for three days and three nights after I had been beaten and flogged and, and, and just totally decimated. So we have like, logically we can come to the conclusion that Jesus probably would have died, but we have truth, accurate medical indisputable truth that Jesus actually did die. Well, that proves that Jesus died. So we've proved that Jesus lived. We've proved that Jesus died. That's step one. The burden of proof now lies upon him resurrecting. Paul makes the claim that there are over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, this wasn't centuries after, as some people have suggested. It was within a single lifetime of the day that Jesus was crucified. In fact, one of the criteria that I was talking about earlier uh, in that article is called cohesion. There has to be cohesion between the sources. There was so much time that passed that anybody could have disputed Paul's writings, but they didn't. 500 people all saying the same thing. I could whisper something in this person's ear in the front and by the time it gets to 50 of you later, it's gonna be totally different. They ever play the game telephone? That's what it is. Now keep in mind, this was also during a time where there wasn't email, there was no text messages, not a lot of mail was, was able to be put, you know, people would have had to hand, you know, oral tradition, so on and so forth. So for the fact that 500 people said the same thing is overwhelming, overwhelming evidence that this is in fact corroborated and that this has in fact cohesion to it. I was actually just reading um, in Acts 1 this morning and in Acts 1 it says, uh, it says basically the same thing, it confirms the same thing and it says, uh, uh, he presented himself alive to them after he suffered by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Another evidence from the Bible that could have been disputed at any point before this book was put into you know, the ringer of becoming canonized and wasn't. See, let's assume Okay, let's assume you're tracking with me and you believe Jesus was a man, Jesus actually died, Jesus actually resurrected. Well, how does that prove that he's the actual Messiah and the actual truth? Old Testament prophecy, his ministry, this entire book. This gives evidence, clarity, comprehension, 
to the rest of the Bible. There are so many Old Testament prophecies that point specifically to Jesus and Jesus's resurrection that give credence to him fulfilling them, thus making it believable that he is in fact the truth. The reality, church, is that truth was on trial. Truth was on trial this day, not just Jesus as a man, but Jesus as the truth. In the same way that we see trials go on now in 2022 in our American justice system, determining if somebody is guilty or innocent, we employ these same tactics to prove that Jesus Christ is the truth. There's evidence, there's eyewitness testimony, there's character witnesses, and all of them have to correspond before somebody can come up with a final decision. And all 12 of the people in the jury have to agree. So as the worship band makes its way back up, I just wanna share one final thought on truth. In 2022, we have something amazing at our disposal that early Christians didn't have. We have the Bible. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know that this is Jesus because it says just a few verses later that the Word became flesh and dwelt among man. So not only can we know that Jesus is the truth, we can know that God's Word is the truth. The Bible is the truth. And if we as Christians, if we as followers of Jesus want to continue to pursue truth, which I encourage you to do day in and day out, we have to read and understand the Bible as God's written word and as God's truth. You know, one of my favorite things about the Bible, there's never been any changes to it. Once, once everything happened at the councils and they put pen to paper and they started to print it, there's never been any changes to it. Think about it. Everything we knew medically 30 years ago is different than what we know now. Think about what people knew in the 1700s. You had a headache, you were dead. Now you know you can just take Tylenol. You know what I mean? In like, my grandfather and my grandmother growing up in Italy, you had a fever, you'd cut potatoes. I don't know what it did, but that was what they did medically. Now we know you can take Tylenol. Every single medical advancement, every technological advancement, every cultural advancement we've made, this book has stood the test of time. There's no amendments to it. There's no changes to it. There's nothing added, nothing taken away. This book is consistent, it's comprehensive, it's corroborative, and it works. You have a problem at home? You can find truth about that in this Bible. You got a problem with a friend or relationship? You can find truth about this. You have a problem believing truth about yourself, that you're loved, that you're chosen, that you're good enough, that you can even approach Jesus and have a conversation with him in the same way Pilate did, you can find that in this Bible. This Bible is one of the most important and incredible resources that we have at our disposal as Christians. And let's not be a church 
that believes what the Bible says because somebody else said it. Let's do the work ourselves. Let's do the work ourselves day in and day out to read this thing as God's word and a manual for our life. So I'd like to ask you a question in the same way that Pilate asked Jesus a question. Can we know truth? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, because of this book, we can know truth. We can know the truth as Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you once again, and we just say thank you. Just say thank you that we have this word. Thank you that we have this opportunity. And again, Father, I I just pray that your spirit would use your word to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we may understand truth better and we may know you as the truth. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the truths that we read in this book about how you feel about us and what you want for us. Lord Jesus, we pray as we move into this time of worship that we can reflect on that and we can return the glory back to you that we know you have given us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Will you join us while we worship? There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Shame is
talked about Christ being the truth. And so in John 14, verse 1 through 7, it says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, to, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, do not, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would also have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so Christ has prepared a place for you and for me heaven with him and his father and the only way that we can get there is through his sacrifice and so we're going to go into this time of communion and so i'll invite you if you don't have a communion cup i think we have some in the back or through the, the doors but as we sing this next song just take some time to pray and reflect 
and just um, whenever you're ready, you can join us as we sing and we worship. You can be seated, you can stand, whatever you feel called to do in this time. Your faithfulness, your faithfulness. 
declare to our God that he is the rescuer. He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how abounds we will praise the Lord our rescuer there is good news the captain good news for the shame I'm just going to start that verse over again Faith you want to come in with me Yes, 
the good Lord is the way, the truth, the life. He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. Come and be shameless, come and be fearless, come to the foot of Calvary, there is redemption for every affliction, at the foot of Calvary, so come and be shameless. Again, church, thank you so much uh, for being here with us. Uh, we will have members of our prayer team down here. Please come down, uh, ask for prayer, pray with one another. Um, and, and I was having a conversation with Pastor Carruthers real quick, and he was asking me, you know, at the end of all of this, what is the one thing that you would want Linworth to take away? And I think the one thing I want you to take away is you can know truth. And if you want to follow Jesus and you want to pursue that truth, there's almost a sense where you owe it to yourself because if you seek that truth and find it, it will change everything in your life. If you don't, it will change everything in your life also. So again, let's be a church, let's be a people, let's be small groups, people in the workplace, coworkers, husbands, fathers, brothers, daughters, everything that pursue Jesus Christ as the truth. So as we raise our hands for our final benediction, we pray to that end that as you pursue truth, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Thanks for being here, church. Next week, we will have a friend of the church. His name is Andy Gray, who will give us a special message. Have a great day. Oh, how sweet the sound.